what's Revelation about? Um, it's about liberation and hope. And I think that the reason, this is what I talk about a lot at the end of the book, that... Whoa, wait, whoa, 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 you can't just go on from there. What did you just say? Say that again. Revelation is about what? I know, liberation and hope. Whoa! Getting crazy, I know. Game changer. Keep doing what you're doing, man. I've been a listener since Bad Christian. You truly are reflecting God's kingdom and are teaching slash revealing his heart. Even with having no answers, your posture is thoughtful and gentle. I think with this type of posture, you have Joey. Jesus is revealing himself within individuals starting from the authentic core of that created person or persons. All different walks of life, he is meeting them where they are at. Thanks, brother. Love, Joel Rambo. And he says, yeah, my last name is Badass. And I would say, yes, your last name is Badass. Thank you, Joel, for writing. I do appreciate it. I think those words may be a little much of a stretch, but hey, I'll accept it humbly. Thank you. So I want to give some shout outs to some patrons of Pastor With No Answers. Most of these people have been supporting me for a long time, and I'll still probably botch up their names. But thank you, Robbie Ethert. Grant Smith, Logan Wood, Jonathan Cornwell, Andy Kraft, Austin D. Hill, Phil Evance, Camden Perez, and Chris Abbott, my homeboy from way back in the day. And I think I, I already shouted out Jonathan Cornwell and, and Robbie maybe just a few episodes ago, but hey. <laughs> Might as well just shout it from the rooftops daily, my friends, and how much you mean to me in this podcast, helping with tons of stuff behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. So I want to just reflect on something that happened to me the other day. We were at a big old fountain at downtown Charleston. You could probably Google the fountain downtown Charleston. You'll see what I'm talking about. And in the summer days, people go there with their bathing suits and they chill and laugh and run around and get wet. It's a fun thing for families and their kids. It's neat. So one time I was watching my kids enjoy their time in the fountain, and I promise you I saw a boy, oh, I would say six years old, who somehow managed to let his bathing suit, his, his, his bathing, what, bathing trunks, what do you call it, swimming trunks, there you go, fall to his ankles. He did not have underwear on, so he's basically standing there naked, and I watched as he grabbed his swimming trunks, and he started to try to pull them up. He got them above his knee, but then once he started to get above his thighs, he could not bring those trunks up, and he kept struggling, and he kept struggling, and he kept struggling, and his little guy was just hanging out there for the world to see. So he's petrified. He's humiliated. One person here and there starting to see, but it's just a matter of time where it's a big scene and I couldn't take it anymore. And yet at the same time, I don't want to run after a little boy that's naked playing in a fountain, but I felt very compelled. I ran full speed <laughs> and I'm being serious. I grabbed his swimming trunks. I pulled them up vigorously and then I ran away back to where I was sitting. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, as as a as a pastor, we always like we always like allegories. We always like little stories that represent stuff. And this one's simple, folks. This one's simple. There's people out there right now that you're annoyed at, you're mad at, maybe you can't stand, maybe you're having a hard time getting along, maybe they cut you off in traffic and you just think they're a jerk, but maybe, just maybe, you don't know, but their wee-wee is just out there for the world to see and they're trying to pull up their swimming trunks and they need help. They just need help. They need help. They're in a desperate situation, and you just never know what people are struggling with. <laughs> 
Oh, my goodness. Lord, thank you for taking care of me when I couldn't get my swimming trunks up. So, guys, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoy help putting it together. We talk about the rapture, Zach Hunt's book on how we've got this stuff all messed up. And I love this conversation. Brings back memories, terrifying memories, but memories all the same that I'm happy to be removed from being in prison to you guys i hope you're having a good summer love you very much peace out a really oh man i don't know if i should tell this story yes every time you say that joey it's it's Please, I hate, I mean, I hate when people do that. All right. So, so not fair. My second oldest daughter is having guitar lessons with a friend of mine, and we have a new puppy. This new puppy goes into our bathroom. The first thing it does is goes to the garbage can to find a tampon because he loves to chew on it. And I'm telling this dog, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But for some daggum reason, he likes women's underwear and he likes tampons. That's what he grabbed. He would love a couple websites that I know about. Yeah, it's a it's actually a a girl dog. I just think all dogs are males. Okay, wait a second. Is the piano teacher or guitar guitar? Guitar teacher, male or female? Male, male. Oh God! Oh my All right. God! So, so I'm gonna throw up. So, Gwenny, she is oh, very self conscious. Oh, she's just she's just getting to know this guitar instructor, so it's oh, not my like gosh. complete comfort. Oh, I'm gonna die for her. Oh, he he no. looks off to the right, and she notices oh, because God. she has an older sister. She notices uh uh some underwear on the ground that the dog just brought down. That mm-hmm. was bloody. Yep. And so Gwenny is freaking out. She's like, oh my gosh, oh my, my gosh, oh my gosh. gosh so the this guitar, is horrifying. The guitar instructor is like looking off to the right. So she literally picks it up, throws it as far back as she can. <laughs> and then he and, and then he turns his head and oh back to business. Okay. So he never back saw He never saw it. That's I quick, have a quick move a, on Gwenny's part. I, I hate to outdo you, but I have a story that outdoes that. And thank God for your daughter, because I'm still living with this horror. Why would I ever be not okay with my, that story being outdone? Now I'm just dying to hear it. Okay. So I I apologize. Oh, I'm like having anxiety a little bit. Just telling you the story. It's fine. Ellen, it's done. It's done. And you talked about it. Okay. So when I was about like 20, I don't know, 28 or something. What are you um, now? 36? 37. 37. Yeah. So I had, uh, I used to cut hair out, out of my house and I would have these uh, brothers come over every, you know, like month or so to get their hair cut. Good friends of mine. I actually dated one of them. So, you know, I want them to like me and think I'm not gross. Um, okay. So sometimes I guess when I was just living in bliss, uh, I would just leave my underwear on the bathroom floor you know and yeah. because when you're just living with you and your husband you just like who cares you know yep oh well i forgot you about can it. say you can say panties by the way yeah it's okay uh we call it's them okay. chonies at our house yeah it doesn't bother hane and i if you call them panties okay so i left it i left them sort of sprawled out as if i stepped out of them okay Oh God, this is horror. I'm real. Why am I reliving this? Because if your daughter talks about it, you tell her the story. This is why I'm, I'm like giving you my trauma to share. Solidarity with my daughter. Okay. Thank you. So the brothers come over. They are so sweet and shy and quiet and hilarious and great. So I'm, I did one of their haircuts and then I start on the other one while the, the first one goes into the bathroom to check it out. He goes in there, he closes the door, and it's just real quiet in there. And then I remember that my period underwear is just open sandwich on the floor. And it's quiet, and he's not saying anything. And I'm cutting his brother's hair, and it hits me. Ellen, you have to say something. (laughs) You have to just say something. Because right now, he's staring at it. He's disgusted. 
And this is my, um, this is something I learned in life. That's very helpful. If you deal with like embarrassing things, you just call it, you name it and claim it. And I said, you got to I know what's in there. You got to come out. I started yelling and I was sweating and I got dizzy. I was horrified. They came out and he was just red in the face. It was horrible. That was, you know, that was like 10 years ago. And I still feel the like the flush in my face when I think about it. Oh, so at least her teacher didn't actually see the bloody underwear. Gosh, it's so, it's so crazy. That's something that Hayne and I will never have to worry about so is horrible. embarrassing blood. There's no such thing as embarrassing. It blood shouldn't be embarrassing, it but the patriarchy not. has really fucked us up. Yep. Yep. No, yep I would yep. agree with that. Also, where where are you where are you tuning in from, Zach? I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Where are you guys at? Both of us, Charleston. Charleston. Nice. I speak for Jack, by the way. <laughs> I only let him talk every now and then. That seems fair. <laughs> I want to have a little bit of fun and tell you guys where I came from with all this end time stuff. And I, I want to say that what I'm about to tell you guys is not an exaggeration at all. Not even one bit. So this was my world. Most kids were worried about whether they're going to beat the next challenger in Mike Tyson's punch out. I was worried about the rapture happening and being left behind. I did rapture phone calls. Like if I didn't know where my parents were, I'd call my mama <laughs> to make sure she's on the earth. I watched a movie made in 1972 called A Thief in the Night in youth group. I still have that song in my head. I think I'm going to play it right here. And it's actually, I was listening to it, and now with my music taste change, it's actually kind of a good, it's actually kind of, sounds pretty good. So anyway, growing up, I had preachers warning us all the time to live righteous lives or we could be left behind. In 1991, when I saw the missiles being fired at to rescue Kuwait, a lot of people would say to get oil, whatever, I was petrified going to bed that night because I thought the rapture was going to happen when I was asleep <laughs> and the chances that I would be left behind just really plagued me. So fast forward 10 or so years to my systematic theology days. And here's what I would say. So in a blink of an eye, all the Christians would be raptured. It would make big headlines. People in the cult would say it's mother nature's way of cleansing the earth from toxicity. <laughs> Things would go really well for about three and a half years. And a leader would emerge who'd have like an uncanny ability to unite everyone. I've heard Oprah Winfrey you know, the, whoever, and this would be called the antichrist. And I, I think most people are joking about Oprah Winfrey, but Probably some people really think that. So things would be awesome, worldwide peace. Then at the end of three and a half years of this peace, wrath would be poured out. It would be misery. And Oprah would be seen for the evil that she had <laughs> been all this time. And I was sure that there were going to be bugs that could bite you and put you in excruciating pain for months where all you could do is wallow in pain, like kidney stones times 100. But here's, here's, here's the twist. Believers who had sin on their hearts and accidentally got their asses left on earth were guaranteed not to be bit by those ones. They could be bit by other bugs, but not that one. And I, I later realized, it was revelation, I realized that these bugs were John the Revelator's best attempt to describe real modern-day weapons like a helicopter. So, <laughs> at the end of the second half of the three and a half years, all of us saints who were raptured, we'd come back to Earth, all on white horses, Jesus leading the way, and we'd watch him, I like this part, 
Watch him destroy all evil once and for all, taking over the world, giving it a thousand years of peace and prosperity as the king of kings, Jesus, would rule the land. That sounds dope. Satan has been bound up at this point, so he couldn't mess with anyone. But like I could imagine saying, Jesus, you couldn't have tied that bastard up from the beginning. <laughs> and to make matters worse, Jesus would let Satan out of his kennel at the end of a thousand years to give him one more chance to tempt and lead astray the sheep that he wants to protect and was doing a good job when he had Satan and, and bound. So I guess he wanted to be nice to Satan or something like a nice gesture at the end. But this actually made sense because I was like, why would he let Satan out? Well, because all along on earth for a thousand years, people were talking shit behind Jesus. Some people were talking shit behind Jesus's back, hating him, not liking the peace and prosperity the whole time. Like things were perfect, but they just didn't like the guy in charge. So when Satan was let out, they took their first opportunity to jump back on his team, revealing that they were truly never with Jesus in the first place. So after that, things get a little fuzzy. I think Jesus would let Satan take what's his, and then heaven and earth would be renewed, and eternity would begin for God's children. The Calvinists even celebrated people burning in hell. They had it come in because these people are always evil because God made them that way, and since they couldn't repent, they didn't repent, and thus they have no excuses. So here's here's the thing. Funny thing, I really believed that I could be wrong on some of this stuff, but for the most part, I really thought that I was right. I mean, it's crazy. It's like really embarrassing. I remember people seeing me as like a really smart Bible guy, and I would tell them basically that sort of stuff. But I read Revelation now, and I, or I, even reading Revelation back then, I was like, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. I just hear little bits and pieces of different pastors put all that together. So fast forward to 2021, I still don't know what the hell they're talking about in Revelation. And I've heard a lot of Christians stop believing in the rapture. I don't know why. What's their posture there? And honestly, I, I kind of just don't care. Like, I, I just want to concentrate on what Jesus told us to do because I just don't know anything about revelation so before we get to the guy that wrote a book on all of it jack what details did i get wrong in my narrative well first of all you know joe if it makes you feel better i have never seen you as a really smart bible guy (laughs) (laughs) uh no you know it's fine it's like i am and I'll, i'll keep this real short but like I mean, I, I recognize every part of everything you said, um, you know, maybe not so much, uh, cause you're significantly older than me, <laughs> maybe not some of the, uh, current events. Cause I was, you know, I was like six during the Gulf war and, um, you know, so some of that stuff, not so much. I, I, uh, my entry and all that stuff, uh, coincided with the release of the, uh, best selling left behind series. Yep. And that was kind of that was actually my entry point into all of that stuff. But everything you outlined, like the whole outline, it's like I recognize all of the parts of that. Even the bugs, the six months excruciating pain. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. So so Zach, I want to kind of start here. Do you are do you know like the history of end times teachings like? The kind of stuff that Jack and I are familiar with, like when did all that stuff start? Or actually, I'll just say you start where you want <laughs> to start, Zach. And is it Zach or Zachary, or you don't care? Um, Zach, I, I, uh, I think my aunt is the only one that calls me Zachary. Cool, cool. Um, that, no, that's that's a great question. Uh, you know, I, I think. For folks like you and me, you know, that grew up that were just so sold out to rapture and times theology, you know, your assumption is this is what Christians have believed for forever, you know, that this is straight out of the Bible. I mean, look, it's right there in Revelation. So this is 2000 year old dogma. Um, And reality, you know, it doesn't exist until about 1850. Um, and even then we're, we're not getting into the, the crazy stuff until, you know, later in the 20th century, you know, later until you know, 1960s, 70s, and then that's when the kind of the publishing goes on or starts picking up. I mean, you, you've always had the belief in the return of Jesus. I mean, that's a confession of the church from the, the dawn of the church, you know, that Jesus will return. Um, you've always had belief that Jesus will return and there'll be this, you know, reign of Christ. You know, uh, the big debate in the early church, you know, wasn't on the time of the rapture because that didn't exist yet. It was on, you know, whether or not the millennial reign of Christ was going to be this real thing or if it was a metaphor, you know, for something else. 
Um, but the idea of a rapture doesn't pop up until the mid-19th century with a guy named um, John Darby, who's a Scottish evangelist. He comes over to the United States right before and then during um, the Civil War. And he has this idea that that the return of Jesus is actually going to be a two-step process. So before Darby, it's a one, one-time thing. Jesus returns, everything's made new, just like the Bible yep. describes. But Bar- uh, Barbie, maybe there's a Barbie involved. I don't know. Maybe she's the Antichrist. Um but Darby comes in and says, no, actually, there's a two-stage return. Jesus is going to come back and claim the faithful. And then after that, you've got lots of bugs terrorizing people, and the moon will turn to blood, and there's going to be all this chaos um, and and weeping and gnashing of teeth kind of stuff. The interesting thing is that he may have stolen that idea from a teenage girl um, who's reported to have uh, had a vision of this sometime around 1850. Um, she... I look when I was writing the book to try to find like you know documentation of that. You're being serious. I'm being 100 percent serious. serious. Um, I I found secondhand or uh, sources, but I haven't found like you know a firsthand documentation of that. Um, but it's it fits with the genre. Um, if he did, but whether he did or didn't, I mean, he's definitely the one that popularizes it. Um, and if you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, he's showing up you know, uh, in the United States right before and then during the Civil War, where it really feels like hell on earth. I mean, you've got thousands of people who are dying every day. You know, war uh, is playing out in people's, you know, literally in people's backyards. Uh, and so the idea that they're in the end times, you know, makes sense. You know, it, it resonates, uh, you know, with his audience. And it's deeply appealing. You know, the idea that um, not just that Jesus is going to return, but the idea that you could be swept away from all of this death, and dying and, and disease um, it will, is understandably appealing, you know, and, and it catches on. Um, you, from there, you know, you start getting different groups that pop up here and there with, okay, Jesus is going to come back at this time. And this is when you start getting the predictions. I mean, you've always had predictions as well. You know, even Martin Luther, you know, tried his hand at it uh, back in the 16th century. Um, you know, obviously they were all right. Jesus has come back like 30 times now um, to fulfill all of their predictions. Um, but you, you start some people in the eighties, some people literally like sold their mm-hmm. houses, which I never did understand that. Like just enjoy your house and relax. If you're not going to be here, like what are you going to do with that money? Anyway, yeah. I was always puzzled. Well, and, and that, you know, I'll circle back to that. Cause that's actually, you know, kind of the heart of the book and, and, you know, the question of why didn't the early church act that way if they thought Jesus was coming back uh, next week. But yeah, and it's, it's the, you see these different groups, you know, like Seventh Day Adventists and and you know folks like that, um, you know, who organize around you know this thing called dispensationalism or this idea that we're living, you know, right before the rapture. Um, but it's not till like Hal Lindsey um, writes a book called Late Great Planet Earth in the seventies that you start seeing the commodification, um, you know, the industrialization of end time stuff, where you start seeing this upswell of books and movies and music and you know anything and everything that folks can sell you um, to. Uh, tell you when Jesus is going to come back and, you know, maybe make a buck or two on the side for the Lord. Um, and so that's when you start seeing the, the, the revelation go from, it's this mystical book that's just telling us Jesus has come back to these very specific um, time, uh, timetables and charts. Uh, some of them, you know, earlier than that as well. I mean, there's, I found some really cool old charts that date back to like the thirties and stuff like that. Um, but, Dang. but the stuff that you see in the left behind series, you know, like you're talking about like the bugs that eat people, yeah. um, that stuff really becomes popularized in the sixties and seventies. And then it gains some momentum in the eighties. Um, you get 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988, which is written by a, a NASA scientist, um, who again was right. And, you know, that'd be a fun read to read now. That'd be really a fun. Well, read. he wrote a sequel, um, 89 reasons why Jesus. <laughs> oh, no, he did. I'm completely serious. Um, his publisher stopped hey, after that. There were, there were no more oh reasons. Gosh, Lord have mercy. Let, hey, let me ask Jack something. Real yeah, yeah quick go ahead. No, if you don't stop me, I'll just keep talking forever. No, and I, I, I want you to go off because that's, that's, that's what I, I really want to hear your take. Jack, I think I texted you one time and asked, isn't it safe to say that Paul believed Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime? And if I remember correctly, you responded and said that we actually need to grapple with the fact that it seemed like Jesus did too. Mm. Do you remember saying that? Yeah, I think so. I've sent you a lot of texts, <laughs> many of them ill-advised. Um, I mean, I think, well, that, that's one of the things you got to grapple with as you, read the, as you read the New Testament, but also as you study the early church is... You know, what I would say is is Jesus seems to indicate that, um, well, he, he at least, at the very least says that it's not the son's role to determine 
kind of the, the, the things that the disciples are asking about. They're asking specifically about the restoration of the kingdom in that passage. And so, you know, I think he's talking at that level, but also one level above them, which is his return, right? And he's kind of saying, like, look, all of that stuff, those dates are set by the Father. That's not really my responsibility. There seem to be some passages where he he might uh, be saying that he thinks he might be returning before, you know, like within that generation. That's a little less clear. I think what's really clear is that what you see in the uh, kind of the first um, hundred years of the church is uh, uh, at the very at the outset a really strong expectation that he will, but that over time we well, just see them kind of. And it's interesting, you know, one of the things that. It, it, you know, you see people say sometimes is, boy, you know, what if there were aliens? Boy, that would wreck your theology. And it's kind of like, no, and it's like, no, it wouldn't. And one of the reasons that it wouldn't is the same thing as like when, when people gradually realized, uh, they gradually realized Jesus isn't coming back. It didn't destroy their faith. They realized, oh, there's a way that we need to look at everything that he said, because clearly there, there's something there that uh, we need to understand a little bit differently. Um, it didn't like wreck the church or ruin people. They just realized, oh, you know, we trust Jesus. We trust what we've told what he's told us. And so we need to take another look at at what he said and how we're to understand that. And I think, you know, Zach, you know, kind of one of the things you said is uh, it's really it's really instructive to look at what the early church said and did about a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and it really gives a window into, you know, how they understood the Bible, but also how they understood their role in the world. And they did not see their role in the world as, you know, holding up in a bunker until they got taken away. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that there was never this big crisis when it became clear that Jesus wasn't coming back in their lifetimes. It was just a, a next step and it's almost similar to Paul's gradual realization. Um, in the early church's gradual realization is like, oh, this is for the Gentiles too. Um, that wasn't a big crisis. It was a course correction. And it was the same thing. It was a course correction. As people realized, oh, he's, he's not coming back in our lifetime. Well, okay. Then, then we need to take another look at, you know, kind of what he said and what our, what our role is in the world. And that's what they did. So, so Zach, tell us, and I don't know if there's even a possibility of making it a snapshot, but what, what the hell is revelation? What's, what's it for? What's it about? Where did we go wrong with thinking that a bunch of people are going to disappear? Do you believe in a rapture? Like, tell us. And I, I guess at the same time, you want people to read your book, so you don't want to give a, like a Cliff Notes version of your book, too. But <laughs> just give it, give us a little snapshot here. It's all about aliens. And my book is explaining <laughs> when the aliens will return, what you need to do to prepare um, and for next year, fifty nine yeah. ninety five, I will provide the proper uniform, um, which is a t shirt. Yeah, hey, hey, <laughs> hey, here's here's here's. I forgot to add this part. I did go through a season of time, and honestly, when you look at scriptures on Nephilim and Sons of Man, and that's a whole different conversation. I did for a while think, you know, who and who who on who and on earth would be able to unify everyone except for an alien that was basically a demon posing as an alien saying, Hey, we created all this. We created you. You need to follow us. And honestly, if you see the rapture and end times in, I guess we'll call it like a traditional since 1850 view that would make a lot more sense than some dude or woman, like bringing everybody on that. Like who in the world, I can't think of one person that everybody in the world would follow. Oh, Dolly Parton. I'd follow her in a heartbeat. Oh, I think, you know, she's a overlooked candidate for the Antichrist. I mean, she's amazing. Nobody hates her. If she wants to take over the world tomorrow, boom, Dolly Parton. Um, Tom Hanks, You too. just changed my life. You just changed my life. I mean, either one sure. of those, you know. Like, Tom Hanks says, guys, one world government. People are like, it's Tom, you know. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, what's Revelation about? Um, it's about liberation and hope. And I think that the reason, this is what I talk about a lot at the end of the book, that... Whoa, wait, whoa, 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 you can't just go on from there. What did you just say? Say that again. Revelation is about what? I know, liberation and hope. Whoa! Getting crazy, I know. Game changer. No, seriously. Like, seriously, every time we've ever talked about it, my upbringing, anytime you ever talk about Revelation, it's scary. Yeah. Like, it's very scary. Well, and liberation and hope. Wow. And it should be for folks like us. You know, I mean, Revelation is 
it's hard to understand, you know, obviously because it's apocryphal literature, you know, and there's weird imagery and it was written 2000 years ago. But the bigger reason I think that it is difficult to understand is because we're, you know, privileged white folks living in the 21st century. Um, you know, we don't have a need for liberation. You know, we're not oppressed, especially as white males. You know, we're not marginalized. You know, we're not silenced. Um, you know, but for a lot of folks in the early church and throughout, you know, time and space, um, that that very much was the case. You know, there was the beast that was early Rome that was, you know, clearly oppressing everyone who wasn't, you know, falling in step or falling in line. Um, and then there was the beast throughout time. And, and that's why, um, you know, Revelation understood as myth is so powerful um, rather than trying to force it into this box of, uh, of history. Um, if we can, you know, unshackle it from this need that we have to make everything literally true in the Bible and allow allow revelation to be what it is, which is this myth of liberation and stop understanding myth as, as, as a synonym for not true, as opposed to just another way of speaking truth. Then we understand why revelation has stuck around so long is because it's this story of God liberating the people of God from the oppressor, from the beast of God, freeing the prisoner of God, um, welcoming the marginalized. And that's a story that speaks to people throughout space and time, whether they're you know, in first century, you know, ancient Near East, you know, but regardless of, of where you are, um, you know, in the course of history, if you're a person who's marginalized and oppressed, um, this this notion that God is coming to make all things new, this notion that you're no longer going to be worrying about where your next meal comes from because you can eat from the tree of life forever, that you will no longer be separated and from friends and family because there will be no more sea. These stories are very, very hopeful. Um, and when we and the power of myth and the power of storytelling is such that that they can speak to people in various places and time. And so that's really, I think. Hey, let me. Sorry, let- go ahead. Yeah, no, let me ask you this. So you say, you're saying myth. Mm-hmm. Does that exclude the possibility of it being a, a revelation that John received in a in a vision? No, not, are those not mutually at all. exclusive? I mean, I, I okay. have no problem. It's, it, do you believe in? Do you believe that traditional John received this revelation? I don't know what the traditional year that Jack. Do you know when people thought that revelation was written? I I'm mean, sure er, Zach, early you, to mid nineties, first century, like. Like, how do you feel about that, Zach? Oh, yeah. Early to mid '90s, John the Revelator, that sort of thing. I mean, if you're what listen to like you know MC Hammer, Vanilla Ice back in the early '90s, like Revelation makes a lot more sense. Um, sorry, yeah, I have a lot of bad dad jokes. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Wait till they turn into grandfather jokes. I'm waiting for that day. Well, one thing I'll say, Zach, yeah, I don't want to stare at but like one thing is Joey. In terms of the word myth, you know, like one of the one of the problems I think a lot of people have is. Um, myth is synonymous with untrue, and that's mm-hmm. not how the word functions. Exactly. I mean, a myth, a myth is a story with a point, mm-hmm. and they can be untrue, but that that has no real bearing on what the mer- the word means. And one of the things is, you know, if if you'll read, uh, I mean, N.T. Wright uses the word myth a lot, and he doesn't mean not true. He means how is this story functioning? And so, myth is really more. Um, it, it's it's a word that refers to um, what the writing what the story whatever it is is how it's functioning and what it's meant to to do yeah i've heard someone say it this way and it may have been you jack but basically no i don't think it was sorry but i've heard someone actually say when people say do you believe adam and eve and that story is true their answer would be i don't know if it really happened but i do believe it's true kind of going along with what you're saying like there is truth still to that story of humanity wanting to do things our way yeah. and how that's not, not a very good thing. I mean, if you think about like a myth like Icarus, you know, or the boy who cried wolf, you know, we wouldn't necessarily call boy cried wolf a, a myth, but I mean, that's what it is. There was no boy, you know, who cried wolf. There was, you know, no wolf that ate him. And yet that story is still true, right? Because it's a story about integrity. Just like the story of Icarus is still true because it's a story about, you know, arrogance and pride. You know, because the truth that they're trying to convey isn't the, you know, historical circumstances. It's this particular, you know, lesson, you know, or message. Um, and, and that's what scripture, you know, has done since the dawn of scripture. You know, um, it's used the power, you know, the transcendent power of myth to tell timeless truths. Um, you know, the things that are true, whether or not they happened exactly in this particular, you know, historical way that's i mean that's something that i try to you know embrace in the book um you know is is that tension yeah i I have no problem with the idea that that john you know was exiled on patmos and had this vision you know i mean people have had visions all the time and you know there's no problem with that when i say myth it's exactly jack's talking about this 
this dichotomy that we have to break ourselves away from of this idea that there's truth, you know, and there's myth or that there's history, you know, and there's myth. And the only things that are true have to literally happen. Um, and that's just not the case with Revelation. And when we we do that, when we try to force, you know, the square peg of Revelation into the round hole, you know, of literalism, you know, we're trying to make it do something that it just, it was not ever, ever, you know, meant to do. So is it myth in its totality when you look at Revelation? And, and, and if so, was it just a vision of Jesus saying certain things to different churches? And did I hear you also say that it also depicted stuff that already happened? I've, I've also heard that, like Revelation is actually a description of stuff that's already happened. But so, so what is it? Is the whole thing a myth? Is it a hybrid of myth and history? Yeah, I mean, that's what apocalyptic literature is. You know, I mean, there's elements that are historical in nature, you know, that um, have, uh, you know, resonance or have connections, direct connections to that particular moment in time. So when you read about things like, uh, like the horror of Babylon, you know, or the beast, I mean, Babylon's a real place, you know, it, it had, it functioned as a very literal oppressor in the story of the people of God. Um, you know, Rome was a literal oppressor of the beast, you know, if, if 666 is the number of beasts, I mean, you can calculate that out to, to Nero, you know, who is very literally oppressing, you know, all kinds of people, Christian Jews and, and otherwise. Um, and so when I say myth, you know, again, like it's, someone is telling this story and it's, you know, I have no problem with it being Jesus telling John, you know, this story, because the truth is not that the truth of revelation is not that there's going to be this multi-headed dragon and locusts eating people's faces. The truth is that God is returning, that Jesus is going to make all things new, that the the poor are going to be um, made first, that the sick are going to be made well, that there's going to be no more sickness or or dying, that the least of these are going to be, you know, made kings in the, in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's the truth of Revelation is that God is is working towards our um, liberation at all times, that God is working at making all things new from the moment of creation to the moment Jesus walks out of the tomb. And so we can believe that we're living in the end times because that act of restoration has begun um, with the walk with the resurrection of Jesus and is continuing even now in these last days. Um, yeah. And so when, Jack- when I say myth, I, I mean that I think that there was a, a revelation that John received, um, but John's not trying to com- communicate a literal story. He's not trying to, offer a roadmap or or a timetable. He's trying to communicate a message. Jack, do you, do you lean heavy in a eschatological? I I don't know if I said that right. Did I, did I say it right? Perfect. Don't try again. It was perfect. You're going to be a trophy dad where you just give your kids trophies for anything. (laughs) But like what, if you had to take a good guess, like if someone said, Jack, just entertain me, appease me here. How do you think things are going to end? How would you answer that? Like, do, do you have like a guess or are you just like, I don't know and I don't care? I'm going to need a specific a date and time as well. Right, right. And write a book. But like, <laughs> will, humani- will humanity just destroy ourselves and that's when everything's made new? Like, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm thinking about the book I'm going to write. I, I think uh, so it's been 88, 89. So I think I'll do uh, 90 Reasons uh, Zach Hunt and his book can go to hell. Uh, it's, it's, it, you gotta be combative. You gotta be combative if it's going to sell. Um, so, uh, so when I was, you know, in middle school, high school, and a little bit in college, I was very much in the, um, like very much into eschatology, very much into, um, you know, all of that stuff. I read all of sorts of books and all this stuff. And, you know, one of the things that I think appeals to people about um, like system systematic end time study is that it's it's pleasing when things have a timeline and it's pleasing when there's a system and it's pleasing when things fit together and you can see the progression and everything makes sense. Like that's that's great. And it's especially pleasing to do that to a book like Revelation, um, which is just, you know, so unlike I mean I don't. I don't think there is even remotely a similar modern genre of literature to apocalyptic uh, literature. Like I don't even know what it what that would be. It's it's its own genre, and it's one that we don't really understand very well um, in our context. And so anyway, so I was into all of that stuff, and I think kind of where where I am now is I think there are really 
there's really only one thing that matters. And I think there there's only really two things that I have any interest in kind of discussing. And that's the, you know, the second coming itself and the nature of the millennium. Um, because I think that's, that's really what the focus, the focus is, you know, the focus is, um, so, so, uh, you know, the millennium is, is kind of the site and the second coming is, is they're, they're all about this idea of, you know, we believe, um, that, you know, in Acts, you see Jesus ascend, see Stephen saw him, uh, well, Stephen saw him standing at the right hand of the father, but you know, other people talk about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the father. So this idea is, and Jesus says at the end of Matthew, all power and authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So there's this idea that the the um, the authority and reign that Jesus has over creation is brought to bear forcefully on the earth, and that's kind of the idea behind the second coming is is he is now coming into his kingdom fully um, to actively reign, and that's kind of also how the millennium is portrayed. Um, and and so to my mind, the second coming is is really all that matters. That's where the force is in the New Testament in terms of like people are not told to watch out for the millennium people or, or, or for like the tribulation. Um, when people are talking about the Antichrist, like Peter talks about Antichrist's plural um, in this idea that's like it's, you know, this we get so hung up on who is it and it's like, it, you know, it's not so much a, a person in the New Testament as it is a spirit. And I don't mean like demon. I mean, like, it's a way of being. Um, and so anyway, so the, 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 the force of the entire New Testament when it talks about this is on the, the, the reign and return of Jesus. And the millennium factors into that in the sense that, like, it's clearly part of it. But what's not clear is how that works out. And one of the things that's interesting, you know, uh, Zach, you talked about, you know, Darby and kind of the rapture being around the Civil War. And one of the things that's interesting, so if you think about the different ways of viewing the millennium, whether it's pre, post, ah, millennium, all that stuff, it's interesting. Like, so so post-millennium uh, is kind of the idea that, like, you know, uh, over time, the world is going to more and more align with the kingdom until eventually it's essentially the kingdom on earth and Jesus returns to kind of just finish things. But it's basically like the world is going to keep getting better and better and closer aligned with the gospel and the kingdom. And then the, the, you know, the final thing to finish it all off is Jesus's return. And what's interesting is that post millennialism uh, was really popular until the two world wars. And, and then you really see it drop off significantly. And that's, you know, I think when you start seeing and and, when when do you see uh, pre millennialism, uh, pre tribulation, all this stuff really pick up steam? Uh, it, it's height of the Cold War, and all of this fear about nuclear annihilation, and and so it's just interesting. But the ways that people view the millennium and the return of Jesus are closely tied to how they feel about the direction of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, you know, I certainly think with COVID, there's going to be, you know, I think you're going to see a resurgence of that. And, uh, you know, what is that, you know, COVID and the ascendancy of China and all these things. It's like, you're going to see a whole lot more pop up, I think. But anyway, that was a long rambling answer to, to just say that for me, it all comes down to the return of Jesus. And then secondary is kind of the, the millennium and how that factors in. So you do believe in a thousand year Jesus reign? Um, Yes, to the extent that it's clearly something, it's a reality that the Bible talks about, but I don't know if it's literal. In terms yeah, of, yeah. is it literally a yeah. thousand years or is that just some, this kind of symbol of, you know, uh, completeness, perfection? You know, I, I don't have a strong view on that. Zach, what is your eschatology, your eschatological approach to life? Es- you said is, it even is, better is that, that time. <laughs> is there, is, is there an, a, an adjective of eschatology? Eschatology is the noun. So es- eschatological. eschatological. <laughs> Y'all both just said it like the word cat. <laughs> and I can't say it after five tries. <laughs> what what's yours, Zach? You know, it it, it would fall a lot of what, what Jack said, you know, uh along those lines. And you know, I would definitely come back um, you know, to we we're talking about four with, you know, how does the early church understand, you know, their response? You know, how do they react to this idea that Jesus is going to come back. And it's not with fear, you know, it's it's with hope, you know, they're excited. Um, but it's also not with escapism, it's with incarnation. Like they're they're not running for the hills, they're not hiding in caves, you know, because they're just waiting for this day of, you know, gloom and doom. Um, 
they're doing something that doesn't make any sense in the context of the left behind books or thief of the night. You know, they're doubling down on discipleship. You know, they're doubling. I mean, they're giving away everything they have. They're selling it to the, um, and giving the money, you know, to the poor. And that's why, you know, Paul says things that to our modern ears sound weird, like, you know, don't get married. Um, you know, like, well, what's wrong with marriage? Well, Paul's not opposed to marriage, but you know, marriage comes, a lot of stuff comes with marriage, especially today, you know, like, if you believe Jesus is going to come back, like literally tomorrow or next weekend, why would you invest in, you know, all the time and energy it takes to plan a wedding and to pick out, you know, a, a vendor and cake and try on dresses and stuff like that? But yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it's, I think for me, it's to get a little nerdy. Um, you know, the idea in theology we have is this idea of a eschatological horizon, um, is this idea of the here, um, the now and the not yet that we live in this moment of Jesus has has risen from the dead. Jesus has conquered death. Something new has happened in our reality, but it has not come to completion. And so the, 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 the question or the challenge for us, or I mean, Christianity in general is well, what do we do with that? You know, what do we do in this in between time? Um, and I think the example of the early church is that we start building the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, that's the prayer of the, or that's the Lord's prayer. You know, the Lord's prayer isn't, you know, thy kingdom um, come and we'll just sit here and wait till it happens. It's on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, it's this call, this challenge to live out this, this, um, future hope in the here now. I mean, it's the Eucharist. When we break bread and drink wine at the Lord's table, we're we're proclaiming this future hope in the here and now. We're proclaiming something that happened in the past and something that's going to happen in the future, but we we enact it in the present um, through this sacrament. So what I talk about in the book is living this this very sacramental life in the sense of we live out this future hope of this renewed life where there is no more Jew or Gentile or male or female because we are all one together. You know, we there is no more or, you know, poor and rich because we share what we have. We're, we take care of the least of these. We care for the sick. All these sorts of things that we read about in the Gospels, we do these things not as an obligation or as a means of salvation, but of working out our salvation, of, of bringing the kingdom of God on earth as is in heaven. So for me, yeah. how you go about eschatology is not wasting your time, you know, trying to figure out a roadmap to, uh, you know, the second coming that doesn't exist. It's you go about loving and serving the least of these, which sounds, you know, cliche yeah. and trite and and generic. But I mean, that's the call of Jesus. I mean, he says, what's the greatest commandment? It's love God and love your neighbor. You know, and that should be our framework, you know, for well, for everything, you know, from what, whether we're reading the Bible, you know, to how we live. Um, and so for me, the the eschatological life is a life, you know, of love. It's it's First Corinthians 13. You know, we, we use that passage in weddings all the time. Um, but Paul's not talking about erotic love there, you know, because as we established, Paul doesn't care about sex. Really? Uh, really? Yeah. I mean, he's he's talking about apocalyptic love. He's talking about how right. you go about living life in the, um, you know, in the end times. And so, you know, all of these acts of, you know, taking care, whether it's taking care of our neighbor or taking care of creation, you know, are are an eschatological act, you know, whether, however we go about loving our neighbor and improving creation or the world that God is giving us is, is an act of, of defiance against the present reality and, and a statement of hope that things are going to be yeah. better. Yeah. Well, first of all, I hope I've got to be a, a good steward of my listenership. I hope when you talked about the Eucharist that you meant grape juice and not, Oh, wine, of course. Brother. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, grape juice. <laughs> Well, I was just going to ask. I I'm pretty sure, and oh man, I'll just I'll just admit it. Like usually when I interview people, I read their book after the interview. So I haven't read the book yet, but I'm pretty All sure right, well, it goes now. in. And, um... <laughs> He's out. Peace out. Good times. I'm pretty. Sh- <laughs> I'm pretty sure you go into just Christians' tendency to not really treat this current life in this current world with the respect and honor and revere that it's due because we just feel like at some point the reset button's going to be pushed and nothing matters anyway because it's just all going to start all over. And gosh, even entertaining a, a universal salvation that comes from Jesus, I've had people ask, well, if that would were to be true, what's the point of doing anything in this world? And I'm like, what are you talking about? God's kingdom on this earth. Like, that's a really big deal. Like, I don't know about you, but I've been in a lot of bondage on this earth and I would love to live in complete freedom. Like that doesn't rob me of any sort of purpose of the church by any means, but you go into that a little bit in the book. Yeah. There's a great quote 
um, that's attributed to Martin Luther, um, but there's no evidence he actually said it. Um, but he supposedly asked, you know, what he would do if he knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow. And his response supposedly was, I would plant a tree. Um, and the idea is that you know, he he recognizes that he's invested in this world. And that when Jesus returns, he's coming to make all things new. He's not coming to make new things. You know, and so that process of renewal is something that we've been called to do as the church, you know, that we are involved in this making of all things new, that it's not something that we just sit around and wait for, um, you know, and then Jesus, you know, shows up and makes everything great. I mean, these are some of the parables that Jesus talks about, you know, about these lazy servants and these people who have been entrusted with things. There's a debate in the early church about whether or not Revelation should even be included, you know, in the Bible. Um, and there were folks throughout the history of the church who have wanted to excise it completely because, you know, what's the point of it? Who cares? It's weird. I mean, and it is a weird, you know, book. There's dragons and whores and locusts and stuff. Um, you know, but the reason that it is stuck around is because, you know, the calling of the church, it, it's most central, um, is this idea that the gospel is good news for the poor. You know, and that's not a spiritual message. Um, I mean, it is in some sense, but I mean, it's a very earthly message. It's, it's a message for people for here and now, you know, and so Revelation is relevant because it's not just this this hope for that one day God's going to come and magically make everything better, but it's this this proclamation that God is already working to make things better through the body of Christ. And so, you know, I think Revelation has to be understood in that context because if it doesn't speak to us um, and it's weird and confusing because we're, 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 we live privileged lives, um, then we need to take advantage of that privilege and, and use it in service, you know, to others. Um, so, you know, Revelation is, is a book of hope for everyone in the sense of it's either a book of liberation for those who are being oppressed, or it's this book of, 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 of invitation for the rest of us to come and act, uh, participate in this incredible act of renewal that God is doing in creation and has been doing ever since Jesus walked out of the tomb. Dang. I, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm kind of motivated to read revelation. Again. Some <laughs> we'll read my book lenses. first. So as long as you purchase yeah, it though, yeah. that's all I'm really, right. I need to say. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to throw a few curveballs to wrap this up, but Jack, I, I want you, while we're on the subject of revelation, like, is there anything you wanted to add or ask? Yeah. Or? You know, one thing, Zach, you said earlier, um, the, in terms of kind of our, our, our approach to revelation, you called it incarnational. And, you know, that's one of the things that I, I kind of forgot to mention about, like when I was talking about my, you know, past and my views on this. And, you know, one of the things when it comes to, um, you know, the rapture and the tribulation and that kind of stuff um, is, you know, the, the one of the arguments uh, kind of for the rapture is this idea that like, well, you know, when the earth is judged um, and, and clearly like the judgment of the earth is, you know, one of the centerpieces of revelation. Uh, it's like, well, you know, uh, obviously Christians aren't going to go through that judgment. And so they're going to be, you know, taken away and safe. And, and like one of the, like one of the big discussions, if you, you know, kind of get, get on the end times thing is the, you know, are Christians going to have to suffer through the judgment of the rest of the world? And, you know, one of the things that, that I've, you know, thought a lot about uh, over the last several years, especially in terms of like, you know, uh, kind of my approach to that is that I really, I really don't have any sympathy or patience for the view that Christians are going to escape all that. And I think my, my deal is uh, that mindset is the same mindset as the thief on the cross next to Jesus who said he could save others, but he can't save himself. Mm. This idea that, you know, what a God would really do is he'd make sure that he didn't suffer. What kind of God can't stop himself from suffering? And, you know, so, so this idea that, oh, well, we'll be spared judgment. It's like, really we we follow the guy who said uh my god my god why have you forsaken me mm -hmm. the idea you know the idea of suffering it, it, if the point of being a christian is to look like jesus i'm not sure how you do that without suffering yeah and uh one of the things is the you know one of the ways we look like jesus in the world is by bearing the burden of suffering mm -hmm. uh and not just our own but the burden of a world that is suffering and so this idea that any part of that, that we would be spared any part of, you know, the judgment of the world because we belong to Jesus. It's like my view is that we're asked to help bear that burden because we follow Jesus, because that's what he did. 
So that's my little. No, I, I agree a, a thousand percent. I mean, and that's where, you know, I go in the book and say, that, you know, r- the idea of the rapture is not just not biblical. Um, it's anti-biblical um, because the story of the Bible is the story of the people of God who walk through the valley of shadow of death. You know, God doesn't take us away. You know, Noah is not taken away from the flood. He he's he's in an ark. You know, he's in a boat. But my God, that would have been horrible. Like it would have been a nightmarish experience to have all of your friends and family and everything you ever know destroyed on the other side of a wall, and then you're stuck with you know your in laws, uh, you know, for for forty days and nights and a bunch of stinking animals. You know, the people of Israel aren't just whisked out of Egypt. You know, there's plagues, and then there's crossing the Red Sea and fleeing armies, and then stuck in wilderness for forty years. You know, the the early church doesn't escape you know, persecution, most of the, you know, the disciples are, are martyred, you know, for their faith. You know, the story of the people of God is exactly what you're describing. It's following in the footsteps of Christ. It's picking up your cross. It's bearing the suffering, um, you know, of others as, as well. And so, you know, the rapture for me, like I said, is not just, you know, it doesn't jive, you know, biblically and you don't have the support and, and there's Darby and all that kind of stuff, but that it's antithetical to what we've been called to be as the body of Christ. You know, we've been called to be this people in and for the world. And we can't do that if we're not in the world. Well, I'm going to tell y'all both that if people are left behind on account of y'all's <laughs> revelation, revelation is liberation stuff, and they kind of ease up, y'all are going to be left behind too, and you're going to get stung by that bee that puts you in excruciating pain for six months. <laughs> hey, so I'm going to ask y'all two questions. It's a little off the beaten path of what we've been talking about. What is, and I just want y'all to take a little guess and you don't have to go into it. Um, it just can be a simple little answer. Do you guys think that when we die, we go to sleep or we go to heaven? Both. Both. Well, well, well. I mean, okay. I, I should premise this with, I hate all questions about the afterlife. I mean, it's <laughs> like, it's just, it's all speculation. Do you, do you hate the people that ask them? More so the askers, ask yeah, than the questions themselves. Okay. No, cool. I, I, I received that. I mean, I, <laughs> well, like, the idea that you like die immediately in heaven, like from a like temporal standpoint, like, you know, that like in the course of time it's happening that way, doesn't make sense to me in the context of like the dead in Christ shall rise first, you know? You know, again, like, you know, we're talking apocalyptic literature here, but. You know, there's this idea that when Jesus does return, that the dead in Christ rise first to meet him in the air. Um, and even if that's allegorical, I mean, there's still this, the implied assumption that— Wait, wait, wait. What did you say about an allegor? Um, uh, oh, allegorical. Like, uh, even allegorical. if it's not true. Um, allegorical, gotcha. Like, uh, like an alligator. So, like, if, if Jesus is coming back to chomp on— uh, <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, like I, to me, script, this, whatever you make of Scripture, it seems to assume that people are dead. And then Jesus comes and folks go to heaven. Um, so, like, my idea is, like, maybe it would seem to your whatever your consciousness is. You know, and the scripture obviously speaks of people sleeping, you know, as well, um, that maybe it seems that way. But, like, if you want to believe whatever you want to believe, like, cool with me. Like, I mean, if yeah. – you know what I mean? Like, if, if it – you know, one of the things I've learned, in, uh, you know, as I've been – in my short time in ministry and as I get older is – you know, if something that's non-consequential brings people hope, you know, like in peace, I'm okay with that. You know, um, if it's, even if it's theologically incorrect, you know, if it's, if it's bringing them the love of God and grace in the moment that they need it, you know, and they believe that their loved one is now in the arms of Jesus. Cool. Cause I don't know. Yeah. None of us do. Right. Right. Yep. With my Al Gore comment, I'm thinking of a new podcast. Just call it dad jokes. <laughs> dad jokes. Jack, what do you think as you're shaking your head in disbelief of my Al Gore joke? Uh, yeah, I guess kind of both in the sense of like, so, so heaven's not heaven's not like a geographical location. It's, it's defined by the presence of God. And so the idea of going to heaven is going to be where God is. And I think that's clearly what you see described in the, in the, in the Bible is that the people of God, when they die, they go to be with him. Okay, what does that mean? Does it mean like they have the sense of the passage of time that we do? Does it mean that like it's... You go to be with God, but it's kind of like, oh, and it's the moment of the return, and, that, and like now everything is culminating. It's like, I have no idea. So, yeah, I guess kind of the same thing is like, yes, you go to be with God. That's what we call heaven. Uh, but I have no idea kind of how that works or what the passage of time looks like or, or any of that. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So here's the deal. 
You can opt out of this question if you want, but everybody's going to think that you're a wuss. <laughs> what I want you to do is I want you to give me a, a, a number, a percent. Jack, you know, I used to do this all the time and y'all hated me. So I just stopped doing it on this, uh, on this podcast. But now I, I, I just have to do this. So I believe scientifically, of course, there's a possibility that we're completely wrong about everything. It, it, you have to you have to admit that like i think so that's my opinion you have to admit although i believe with all of my heart i do think that there's got to be a chance that i'm completely wrong with all of it so what i want to ask y'all is what is the chance numerically that when you die it is nothing but a dirt nap so like I said, you can opt out if you want, but no one is going to think very highly of you if you do that. So I want a number figure, Jack, number. What? Well, zero. I mean, I, I think, uh, well, don't I think there's a chance. It's, it's, well, so, okay, here's the deal. Like, yeah, there's a chance you're wrong, but that's not really, you can't really live your life that way, right? That's not how you actually, live. that's just kind of a theoretical thing. Um, it's like, yeah, sure, sure. There's a chance I'm wrong about everything, but no one. Like you don't live your life that way. Um, and so it, it's, you know, the the whole notion of the afterlife that you see develop throughout the Bible is one that basically is based on the idea that if God is if God is the God of the living, then death can't be the end. And there's always a sense of like, oh, like you see very early on in the, in the Bible that, that, that the afterlife is basically the same as everyone else in the culture in the ancient Near East, which is like Hades. Which is, it's not bad, it's not great, you know, kind of like Cleveland. It's like, you don't really want to be there, but if you're there, it's, it's not the worst that could happen. Like, no one's happy about being in the afterlife, um, but it's not hell. Um, but what you see over time, and it, like, you see this development throughout the scriptures, is you see this growing sense that for God's people, that doesn't, that's not satisfying. And, uh, and you see that develop all the way through the early church, where like the resurrection is this whole new way of understanding what God has planned for his people. So the idea that death is the end and there's literally nothing beyond, I guess my view is zero, because if, if there's a non-zero chance, then my entire worldview makes zero sense. And since that's not kind of how I operate, I got to go with zero. So you don't give it any chance that God does not exist? Because, uh, again, with all of my heart, I have faith. I feel it in my bones. Like, I feel like I've had some encounters here and there. But there's got to be a chance, right? Isn't there a chance? <laughs> That's another podcast, I think. I think, my, <laughs> right. I, think, I think my deal is, yes, there is a percentage chance, and I actively reject it. Gotcha, gotcha. Zach, what about you? Percent on a dirt nap. Um, I mean, I like naps, but I, I think, think I want a dirt nap. To quote the great philosopher Billy Joe Armstrong, um, yep. I am a walking contradiction. Um, I think in my heart, I, I think in my head a lot of times it's 50-50, um, but I try intentionally to live that there's 0% chance that I'm wrong um, because I find that more hopeful. And so, you know... It, I just, I think I'm a contradiction. Like I, there are days where I, I seriously question the re reasonableness of, of, of what I believe, you know, like the idea that some, you know, Jewish carpenter came back to life, you know, and that changes the course of history is kind of absurd. Um, but there's a lot of things that are absurd that are still true. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that there's, there's definitely a chance that I'm wrong. I mean, that's honestly, that's like half of my book is just a testament to how wrong I was about, you know, the, the rapture and the end times. And if I'm wrong about that, you know, then what else could I be wrong about? And that's what, you know, unraveled my faith. But, you know, I, I try to live in such a way that I, I think that there's zero chance because I see the kingdom of God dawning, you know, um, already in the here and now. And so um, in my head, you know, at least 25%, but the way I try to live is zero and that sounds really corny and evangelical, and that's not how I mean it, you know, at all. I mean it in the sense of like, um, you know, I I want to fake it till I make it, kind of, if that makes sense. Like, 
Sure. You know, it's it's C.S. Lewis and and the Silver Chair and Puddleglum. You know, where he's like, you know, even if there's not an Aslan, you know, even if there's no Narnia and it's all made up, you know, that seems like a better reality to me. Or you know, living in that fiction is better than this dark reality under the ground. And to me, that's always resonated a lot. Is that like, you know, even if I am wrong, you know, like like that's okay, you know, because I can see this kingdom of God here and now. And if I wake up or don't wake up and it's just a dirt nap. You know, I had a great run. So, but I'm right about everything. That's really the point of my book. So, that, that's ultimately where I end up. I love it. I'm going to give it a 0.5%. I'm going to give it 0.5. Well, I'll wrap it up here. Your book came out 2019, the before March times. 19th, March 19th. And Rachel Held Evans passed away less than two months later and she wrote the foreword. Can you give me a little? I mean, that, that may be an emotional question to no, ask. No, I don't, I don't mind. Yeah, right. Yeah, tell me about that. Rachel was a friend and she was, you know, incredibly supportive. Um, we have had and still have, you know, a group of writer friends who have, you know, experienced a lot of things in, you know, similar places in life. And I was fortunate to be in that and got to know her through there. And she was just incredibly kind of supportive. We have very similar um, backgrounds, you know, uh, personally. I mean, we both grew up in Tennessee and, uh, you know, both grew up in very conservative evangelical, you know, uh, context. Um, our colleges played each other, you know, in, in sports and stuff like that. And so, you know, it was an easy, uh, friendship to have. Um, I've gotten to know her husband, Dan, even better. He's, he's fantastic and brilliant, um, and incredible writer. And, you know, it's, it's still weird. You know, like I, I still expect to log into Twitter and see Rachel and, you know, some yep. Yep. Uh, funny, you know, going at it um, or to pop in, you know, to our Facebook group and, you know, see her uh, drop a bunch of exclamation points on some, you know, exciting news that somebody shared because <laughs> she was, you know, one of the most supportive people um, that, that I've ever known. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just weird, you know, like I, it's. You, you go through the, I mean, there were people that were certainly a lot closer to Rachel than I was, but, um, you know, it's just, it's weird at this point in life. It's just, it's, it's weird, you know? Um, and it's, it's painful both to lose a friend, but then also the influence, you know, that she had and the mark that she made on the world. Like she, I mean, she was just getting started, you know, and she yeah. had touched so many lives and was challenging so many systems and people that needed, you know, challenging and, and forcing people to think in ways that, that hadn't, that they hadn't thought before and, and welcoming people that hadn't been welcomed before, you know, which is maybe the most important part of her you know, life and ministry. Um, and to, to be snuffed out, to have that snuffed out so quickly um, and so randomly, you know, uh, yeah. is, yeah. is one of those things that leads me towards that 25 to 50% of you right. know, questioning, you know, how does a loving God let this happen? Um, but like, like Jack said, that's, that's another podcast, you know, for another day, but, but she was great and, and kind and, and she is dearly missed by a lot of people. You think the key to a meaningful life is to avoid suffering at all costs, or perhaps to inflict it on other people to get your way? Well, think again. Because our God works not through power or control or might, but through suffering and sacrifice. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to be prepared not to win, but to lose.